Good morning. My name is Ryan Elwell. I'm going to be reading the sermon text this morning from John chapter 20. That's uh, page 409 in the uh, Bible in front of you if you're using that. 906. So John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. In the evening, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when, he, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Place your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we, um, we've had an opportunity, we've just had an opportunity to give of our, our possessions um, as evidence that we don't trust in the things that we have. Um, and I pray that as we hear your word, opened up and explained that you would show us the ways in which we, we still trust too much in what we can see and touch and too little in your unseen power and promises. Father, I ask that you would be with your servant as he teaches, guard his mind and his tongue so that he will only say what your spirit would want us to hear. Um, and through this, we ask that our faith would be deepened that your church would be strengthened, and that, above all, your name would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a partner today. Thank you. Mercy on my back. Thank you. 
see what I can do. All right, I can, I'll see the Thompsons through the microphone. Stan, I'll be okay. Thank you for that reminder that I'm a servant. That was very edifying, brother. Um, I imagine if you were to tell an unbelieving neighbor or coworker, perhaps sometime this week, that in the sermon on Sunday, uh, if you were to tell them, you know what my pastor said on Sunday? He said, you're dead. It's possible that if you were to say that to someone that you might get an angry response. I think more likely actually would just be that you would get a, a, a whatever, whether it's a look or a verbal expression to the effect that you've just lost your mind. I don't even know that there would be enough thought given to it to even arouse anger. That just sounds stupid. I'm walking around, I'm smiling, I'm eating and drinking, doing lots of stuff. What are you talking about? And, and you could say in response, well, you could be doing all of that. You could be walking around and smiling and eating and drinking and doing a whole lot of things and actually be dead. And it's not just my pastor that said that actually, but it's Jesus Christ himself who said that. I, I think that is an implication of John's words at the very end of this passage that we just heard read. Very critical words, which we have come back to many times in this lengthy series through John's gospel. They are somewhat of a purpose statement to John's whole gospel. Verse 31 These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Implication, those who are not believing upon Christ are not living. They don't have life. Now, that's not just a word that the visiting non-Christian among us needs to hear and consider this morning. One of the reasons that we gather on the first day of the week, which is the day that Jesus defeated death, that's why we gather on Sunday morning, one of the reasons why we gather is that we would be awakened or perhaps reawakened to what's real, to what's most important because we can all grow dull and forgetful of this. We can begin to think in the midst of a week that my job or my bank account or my political convictions and the prospects that loom on the horizon with midterm elections coming up or my hobbies or entertainment or sports or even my ministry, we can begin to think that those things are the things that make life, life. And yet we are reminded in God's word, 
in him. This is the way John's gospel begins, at least in the first, it's verse four of chapter one. In him was life. He said that he had come that people might have life and have it abundantly. He said he was the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. It is a marvelous life, overflowing, good, joyful, plentiful, full of rest and gratitude and security and freedom. He came to give his people life and those who are without him are without life. And this passage that we come to this morning in our study highlights for us two features of this life that I would like for us to consider this morning. The life we have in Jesus' name is a life of peace, and it's a life of purpose. A life of peace and a life of purpose. And as we would think on them today, it's been my prayer that you would know and enjoy more or perhaps come into the enjoyment of it for the very first time this morning, this beautiful life without which no one is truly alive. Life in Jesus' name is a life of peace. It's evening as we enter into the world of this text. It's evening on As I mentioned a moment ago, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus defeated death and had appeared to Mary, as we considered those words last Sunday. And we're told that the disciples, at this point, most likely the 10 apostles, right? Not Judas. And we're told in the passage, Thomas was not there. So it's probable that the 10 apostles were gathered together with the doors locked, we're told, for fear of the Jews, In particular, this seems to be a reference to the Jewish leaders, right? We know that the 10 apostles were themselves Jews. They were not afraid of all Jews everywhere. They were Jews. They were specifically afraid, it seems, of the Jewish leaders. The Romans had just executed their Messiah and their master, and it would be easy for the Jewish leaders at that point, having done away, so they thought, with Jesus, to go after his small band of followers and wipe out this whole Jesus movement entirely. And so there's, we can somewhat sympathize with this fear. And yet into the fear, the risen Christ appears to them and he appears with words of peace. Right? We see it three times in this passage. In verse 19, peace be with you. And then again in verse 21, peace be with you. And then eight days later when Thomas is gathered with them again, verse 26, peace be with you. And at once, going back to that first occasion when Thomas was not present, at once their fear is quickly swallowed up in joy, right? Verse 20 says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Why would they not? Christ had pronounced his peace upon them. Now, this word peace, I know some of you are aware of it. It, the, The New Testament was written in Greek, but the Hebrew word that would have been rooting this 
pronouncement is the word shalom. It was a very standard greeting at that time. So in and of itself, it wasn't necessarily notable that Jesus might stand with them and and say shalom. But I think in this context, it's probably not functioning as just an ordinary commonplace greeting. This is Jesus' first visit to his disciples since his betrayal and his arrest and his unjust trial and his flogging and his crucifixion, which he culminated with the proclamation, it is finished. And of course, we know that in the midst of that all, there was the fact that these very men had deserted Jesus in his hour of weakness. It was not their finest hour in that hour of weakness. And so I don't believe it's incidental that Jesus would stand among these very men, that when he first arrived and appeared to them, that he would proclaim to them, peace be with you. The first thing that we would hear from his mouth, that these apostles would hear from his mouth is a word of peace, not a word of blame, not a word of criticism or fault finding or rebuke, but a word of peace, peace be with you. May it go well with you. May you be blessed. May you flourish and be cheered. May you be confident. May you have assurance and be calm and have rest. This is the life we have in Jesus' name. This is the life, this is the peace that Jesus had come to bring in his incarnation, in his taking on flesh and blood. According to the Bible, the peace that we most need is not an internal subjective sense of tranquility, but is peace with God. The one whom we should most fear is not troubling circumstances that might disrupt our inner peace, but the one we should most fear is God. The one from whom you and I need to be saved is God. If God is perfectly good and holy and righteous, and if we are not, then he will not allow our wrongdoings to go unaddressed. And so you and I are in trouble. Objectively, we are in trouble. It's not just a bad feeling that we have or unrest or stress that is our problem. We objectively have a problem before God, whether we feel it or not, actually. Because by nature, through our relationship to our first parents, and which we have proven in our own choices, we have estranged ourselves from God by our rejection of him and our preference for our own rule and authority instead of his. We have made ourselves God's enemies and thus objects of his wrath. The word of God even calls us in Ephesians chapter two, children of wrath. We need then a peacemaker. We need a reconciler, and that is what the Son of God came to do when that eternal word took on flesh to dwell among us. Jesus has made made it possible for God to be at peace with us, 
and he did so by bearing God's righteous wrath towards us. Which is why at the beginning of this gospel, John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus was the fulfillment of the, the, the centuries-long hopes of the prophets encapsulated in that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah, which we come back to so often, Isaiah 53, 5, when we were told of this suffering servant who would come, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That, that may be why Jesus, immediately upon pronouncing this peace upon his disciples, he showed them, what are we told there in verse 20? He showed them his hands and his side. We do not have peace with God because of what we do for him. We do not have peace with God because of what we feel about him, because of what kind of butterflies you had as we were singing songs this morning, or by how your week has been. We have peace with God only because of what Jesus has done for us. And so Jesus holds out his hands to them. He says to them, peace be with you, brothers. Here are the wounds. And by these wounds, you have been healed. I have borne the chastisement that brought you peace. See these marks in my hands, these wounds in my side. They stand as witnesses that the payment for your sins has been made in full. Not only because he was pierced, but because on the third day he rose again. Jesus was, as we were reminded of last Sunday from Romans chapter four, he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. And therefore, Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter five, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We don't have peace with God because of how we feel this morning. One of my all-time favorite hymns is uh, written by a man named Horatius Bonar. It's called, I Hear the Words of Love. And there's a verse in it that says this, My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. That's good news, beloved. This is a peace that does not depend on the passing circumstances of this world. Jesus' disciples were in this room locked up for fear, and yet Jesus' presence among them immediately caused their fears to fly away, and they were overjoyed that their master was in their presence. He was with them. In a sense, nothing had changed about their circumstances. If they were fearful of the Jews, the Jews were still a threat to them in a certain sense. Jesus had still promised them earlier in this gospel that they would have tribulation, that they would be hated and rejected by the world. But Jesus' presence became their peace and they were filled with joy. A peace 
that surpasses our earthly circumstances. Kids, kids, God is always good to his people, even when really sad things happen to them. Sometimes he does allow really sad things to happen to his children. But he does that only so that we would end up being happier in the end. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand that. But that's what God promises to us in his word. What he wants us to know, kids, and you understand, adults, when I talk to the kids, I don't mean for you to just check out. But kids, what he wants you to know in giving up his son is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we could have him and be with him forever and to help us know for sure that everything that happens in our lives does not work against us and our being happy forever with him, but actually all of it works for us. And to know and believe that gives us a reason to always have peace. Is that not so, saints? We can experience peace in any and every circumstance because in Christ, God has promised to be with us in any and every circumstance. His presence is our peace. Ephesians 2 says, he himself is our peace. If Jesus were to abandon us, if he were to forget us, we would have great reason to be without peace, but that will never happen. We we were reading this passage last night as a family, and and my wife pointed this out. I was not going to say this, but it's a good thing to insert here. Even locked doors are not an obstacle for the presence of the risen Christ to be with you. He just goes right through. You want to talk about the dynamics of that? I'm not sure how that all worked. Did he just sovereignly unlock the door and come in? Or did his body just shut? The point is, locked doors are not an obstacle for Jesus getting to you. He has rescued us from his wrath and he is leading us to glory and he is following us on the way with his goodness and mercy as our good shepherd all the days of our lives until that day when we dwell forever in the house of the Lord. We will have bad days. But the worst we have in this life is the worst we will have ever. There will be some times of weeping and there will be some times of sorrow, but praise Jesus, there will be no experience for us who are trusting in him of an eternal abiding in weeping and gnashing of teeth. He has removed that forever. He is the source of our peace and he never leaves us nor forsakes us so that we can always know and enjoy this peace. But you know what? Though he has promised and he's risen from the dead to guarantee it, that he will never leave us or forsake us and that that ought to produce in his people a deep and sweet and abiding tranquility in our souls as, if, as Philippians 4 says, that peace which surpasses understanding. He has made that possible for us 
And yet I find in myself, I wonder if you do sometimes as well, I find in myself this wretched principle of doubt and unbelief that causes me to neglect that peace, to forego that peace that has been so graciously provided for me in his dear son. And so it is good and right for us to say that this peace Jesus has pronounced upon us is a peace that does not depend on passing circumstances. I think what was even more precious to me as I studied God's word this week is that it is also a peace that is not dependent upon my virtue or upon the strength of my faith in order to possess it. Praise God for that. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Even when you fail to enjoy the inner calm and the freedom from fear that he has made possible for you in Christ, you can still know and enjoy peace with God. Why do we know that? Why do I say that? Because he pronounces peace to these very disciples who had a few days earlier abandoned him when the going got tough and who had locked themselves in a room because they were afraid. They were not feeling peaceful. But he went in and he proclaimed to them peace. And it wasn't just for those 10 gathered on that first what we might call Easter night, but he pronounced peace to this one disciple particularly that we read about in verses 24 to 29, Thomas. You know him as Doubting Thomas. The other disciples did doubt. We don't ever call him the twin. He's just Doubting Thomas. In the text, he's the Thomas the twin. And we could talk, some of you maybe want to, and we could talk more after the service if you would like about the sort of the dynamics of doubt and unbelief and how Jesus uses evidences to teach us. And I want to focus more uh, not on Thomas, but on how Jesus relates to Thomas. Here's Thomas adamantly insisting that he needs to see I'm not sure if Ryan intended this when he read, but I was just struck even in hearing Ryan read the words. He emphasized the words, my, my hand. If I don't put my uh, finger and my hand, and I just thought, what? It was maybe some self-confidence. I need to see this. I need to prove this. Even though he's had other eyewitness testimony, the other disciples had proclaimed, we've seen the Lord. He's saying, I need to see it. And yet, what does Jesus do? Here, peace be with you. First of all, he says, peace be with you, including you, Thomas. And then he comes and he says, here, see, look at my hands, look at my side. So even when you don't feel peace in a world of tribulation, take heart, brothers and sisters, that you still have peace with Christ. His word to you in your weakness, his word to you in your doubt is not a word of woe, but it is a word of peace. Do you not know what it is to have some Thomas moments? Do you not see in your own heart a little bit of Thomas doubt or skepticism or cynicism? 
Are you not grieved sometimes, saints, when you look at your own life and you observe the ebb and flow of your zeal in his service? The littleness of your faith in his promises? The coldness of your love for him, the dividedness of your devotion to him, the inconsistencies of your faithfulness, the impurities in your holiness, the flippancy of your reverence and worship. Do you not see that sometimes? And does it not at times just cause you even to almost despair entirely? Thank you that one would say yes. She also bears the name Lazarus. Maybe there are other non-Lazari here who also know a little bit of what that's like. In those moments, God's word encourages us to consider the heart of Jesus towards Thomas. How does he relate to you in the midst of that kind of angst and that kind of heartache that you might have about the ongoing corruption in your soul as we consider our great and many flaws? our blemishes and our imperfections, the heartbreaking dissonance between what we know and how we actually live as we consider the shameful stature of our current godliness and how poorly and inconsistently we follow Jesus, we can still know that Jesus speaks to you as he did to Thomas. He speaks a word of peace. Peace be with you, he said to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is the heart of Christ for strugglers and for doubters who lament that they are not yet what they one day will be and who eagerly long for that day when we obtain the hope of righteousness. The Apostle Paul spoke of it this way in Galatians chapter 5, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Oh, Jesus is gentle with the broken. He will not break that bruised reed that is your faith. He will not snuff out that faintly burning wick but he will deal gently with you in your weaknesses. If you would simply, as we sang of, run to him. In a sense, we don't really actually need to run to him because he's right there with us all the time. But you understand what we mean. If we would turn to him, he will deal with you gently because he knows what it is to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. And if you would say to me, Larry, that, you know, he hasn't shown me his side he hasn't shown me his hands like he did to Thomas. That's not a fair analogy. Thomas was doubting and struggling. And then Jesus showed up physically and he, he was right there saying, here, look. Well, Jesus has a word for you. You saw that in here, didn't you? He did not need to say this. I mean, it could have just ended. He could have just, Thomas could have confessed, my Lord, my God. They could have had a big hug. And then next scene. But Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. He didn't say that for Thomas's sake. He said that for your sake and mine. He's, if you're here this morning and you're a visitor and you've not put your faith in Christ, he said that for your sake too. If you're here this morning, we are glad that you're here. If you're among us and you're thinking through what it means to be a Christian perhaps, or just somebody you came because somebody invited you to come, I do want you to know that God's word says to you, 
In Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. And I do not think that means that unbelieving people never experience any kind of inner tranquility or sense of happiness that things are going well in their lives. I do not think that every believer or every unbeliever deep down, they just are in angst and in turmoil. I think there's some unbelieving people that you know, that you live around, that you work around, or that maybe you're related to, and they just really legitimately think that everything's fine. The problem is that, and I've used this analogy before, but it's one of the best ones that I can think of, their, their, their sense of peace is like the sense of exhilaration that a person has when they're parachuting down out of the sky and they're thinking this is the most thrilling, wonderful time, but they don't realize that the parachute that they've got on is broken and it's not going to open. And they're maybe 20 seconds from an awful, horrible death. They may have real exhilaration, but they don't know what's coming. And God's word says there's no peace for the wicked because you, if you don't have peace with God, there's no real substantive peace that you can hold on to beyond the fleeting circumstances of this world. And so I would invite you, if you're here this morning and you don't have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to consider that end. And the fact that the Lord has brought you here perhaps this very morning, that you might see that as the end that you might be horrified by that being the end and that the good news of salvation, of peace with God and everlasting life is available to all who would turn away from their sin, turn away from their self-rule and receive the loving, gracious pardon that has come to all hell-deserving sinners who would receive it through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And for those of you that who have believed, we have this sure word, the word of a resurrected king, that he who began a good work in you, he will not abandon that work, but he will bring it to completion unto the day of Christ. We have a sure word that when I fear, my faith will fail, as we're going to sing later, my inner sense of calm will keep me going. That is not what we're going to sing. We are going to sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And that is a great source of peace when you don't feel peace. Because of his promise, because he is risen and his resurrection has confirmed that all of God's promises are in fact going to be true in him, we know that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior, and we will be made to sin no more. Sin will be purged from us and there will no longer be anything accursed, not around us and not within us. And on that day, the majesty of our royalty will be fully expressed. The crowns that he has promised to the faithful will rest on each of our heads. We will be seated with Christ to share in his reign. We will be even made, the word of God says, to judge the angels. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed and we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And so even when you are freaking out down here, even when you feel yourself to be in a pit of despair, that is the truth in Christ and there's great peace to be had in that. Now that's just such good news that we can't keep it to ourselves. We need to spread that word. We need to tell others that word, which we can do. And that brings us to the second observation. It will be briefer. Is that a word, briefer? It will be more, it, you understand what I'm saying. 
life in Jesus' name is a life of peace, it is a life of purpose. You could use the word mission, but that would mess up the P thing I had going. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I've I've bitten off too much that I can chew. Um, But let's say this. This breathing of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples, how do we make sense of that in light of the, what we know happens a few weeks later and it's recorded in Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit descends upon them on the day of Pentecost? I think the idea here, and many commentators see it this way, is that this is essentially an acted out parable in which Jesus is promising to them, kind of the way he did back in chapter 13 when he washed their defeat and said, and if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you're not clean. He was really not thinking so much about the foot washing, but he was acting out something that was a preview of what he was going to do, the cleansing that he was going to secure for them on the cross. So I think the idea here with this sending of the Spirit, this breathing of them on the Spirit was a a promise to them that very soon, just in a few weeks on the day of Pentecost, they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. And it is a reminder to us as we engage in this purpose that we cannot do anything. We cannot accomplish anything without the presence of the Holy Spirit. This commissioning did have specific significance for the first apostles, but I'm including us in it because we understand that this purpose, this mission, continues down through the centuries, which is why Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel that he would be with his people to the end of the age to make disciples of all nations. This purpose continues on. What a purpose it is that we would be sent in the same manner in which the Son himself was sent. As the Father is sending me, Jesus said, I'm sending you. Meaning, I think, first off, the purpose of making God known. That's how are we sent as the Son is sent. Well, Jesus was sent to make God known. And Jesus was sent, and we see throughout John's gospel that he lived in, in selfish devotion to seeking his sender's glory. And so we go in obedient reliance upon the one who sends us in selfless devotion to see his glory spread. And we are sent out to spread this good news, to bear witness to the finished work of Christ, to hold out forgiveness of sins in his name, and to urge upon lost and condemned sinners to be reconciled to God. Verse 23 does not mean that we actually effect someone's forgiveness, right? We don't don't have the authority to actually tell someone that they, to know we're, we're forgiving you and therefore you're good with God. That is not an authority that we have. What we are called to do is to declare to the world the only way of forgiveness, which is through faith in the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I believe more than just that, not just this declaring, but also that we have the authority to recognize those who truly give evidence to receiving that forgiveness through faith and repentance. uh, Jason talked about this in the Sunday school class a little bit, and we will talk about it more in the Sunday school class if you want to jump into that in the weeks to come. 
But the, the, the church has been given authority. But when he says, whatever you forgive, it's forgiven, I think that seems to be saying more than just go preach to people that they can be forgiven through Jesus. Now, we don't affect it. We don't make someone a forgiven person, but we do have the right. This is what Jason mentioned earlier and what Jesus calls the, uh, the keys of the kingdom. We do have the authority to recognize and publicly identify someone as being a forgiven Christian as we listen to them bear witness to faith in Christ and as we hear them, as we watch them bear the fruits that befit repentance. What does that mean for us? It means, it means joining a local church, actually. I have to just say something about this because really the practice which sometimes puzzles you when, when one of us stands up here and we're taking communion and we say, we really think it would be a good idea that you joined a local church, that we're just not making up, that up out of thin air. It's actually rooted in this passage of Scripture. Uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentary on, this, on these verses, says there are two ways that the apostles and ministers of the church are to engage in this work of what he says, remitting and retaining sins. He says, one, we do it by sound doctrine. We do it by telling the world that salvation is to be had on gospel terms, that is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, we do that by a strict discipline, applying the general rule of the gospel to particular persons. And then he says, Matthew Henry says, whom you admit into communion with you, according to the rules of the gospel, God has admitted into communion with himself. And whom you cast out of communion as impenitent and obstinate in scandalous and infectious sins has been bound over to the righteous judgment of God. So part of the way that we do the work of the church is by actually getting to know one another and being able to listen to what someone is confessing, what it is that they're believing about Christ, and to evaluate how it is that they're living so that we can say, you know what? It seems like you, in fact, are a forgiven person. I can see the fruit of God's spirit working in you. And we engage in that together. That was just understood 350 years ago. And uh, we may not understand it, as well today, that we don't actually have the authority or the self-awareness or the personal autonomy to declare ourselves fit for communion. But actually, Jesus means his church to have something to do with that. Now, I got a lot more to say about that, as you can imagine, but you can come to the Sunday school class when we talk about why join a church. I think that's on May 22nd. I'm sure you'll all put it in your calendar, circle your, 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 your calendar for that. Okay, I just lost some of you. Let me bring you back. This is an astounding privilege that we have and stewardship that we have to be entrusted with the very words of forgiveness of sins and peace with God. That people like Thomas, that people like you and me might be sent, even as the Son is sent, to make God's glory known and to declare the good news by which men and women and children might be reconciled to him. That is a spectacular privilege. Uh, Charles Spurgeon never ceased to marvel at this privilege that was his. He wrote in the 19th century, I have, and this is, you said Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a preacher, you know, I think it's every bit as relevant for you as you go out in your neighborhoods and your workplaces and in everywhere that you go to declare the good news of Jesus. I think this is just as true for you. I have always felt in my own mind that it was one of the clearest proofs that I had God's forgiveness of my many sins 
when I was trusted to preach the gospel. I should think that if a prodigal came back to his father, the old gentleman would kiss him and receive him and rejoice greatly over him. But the next Saturday, the market day, the old gentleman would say, I cannot send young William to market. That would be putting temptation in his way. Here, John, you've always been with me. Go to market and buy and sell for me, for all that I have is thine. William, you stay home with me. He, he might not let him see all that he meant, but he would say to himself, dear boy, he's hardly fit for that great trust. I love him, but I still hardly dare trust him as much as that. But see what my Lord did with me. When I came home to him as a poor prodigal, he said, here's my gospel. I will entrust you with it. Go and preach it. I bless his name that I have not preached anything else and I do not mean to begin to do so. Then the Lord said to me, I will trust you with those people at Water Beach, at New Park Street, at Surrey Gardens, and at the Tabernacle. Okay, those are, those are contexts for Spurgeon. Where's he sent you? Go and see what you can do to bring them to heaven. I do long to see souls saved as one great result of my ministry. But what an instance of my Lord's love it is that he thus trusts me. Beloved, that's a word for you. As you are sent, even as the Son has been sent, to bring the good news of forgiveness of sins to hell-deserving sinners through your words and through your life of love that would show something of the sweetness and the preciousness of those words. What love indeed that he would so trust us. There's a lot more that I could say, but I don't think this is the last sermon I'm ever going to preach to you. Just saying, if the Lord wills, we don't know what, you know, I plan to be here next week, but Christ is risen, beloved. And so it is not possible for gospel ministry to fail. These, these 11 did not look like a real sharp bunch. Okay? Jesus looks like a great king and savior in this passage. These disciples, they don't look like much to look at. And yet we're sitting here today because by the word of God and by the presence of the spirit in their, of God in their lives, they carried it on. And it's been carried on for 2,000 years so that we would have a gospel to sing of and praise God for today. Amen. Keep sowing in faith, beloved, in your workplaces, amongst your family members, amongst those unreached peoples. Where are you? Going back 18 years, and you're going back this week. Maybe for the last time, you don't know. None of it is in vain, brother and sister. All of it is good. The lamb will indeed receive the full reward of his sufferings. So enjoy his peace, brothers and sisters, and give yourselves to this magnificent purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's a good work. Let us not grow weary in it. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we thank, you for, we thank you for your peace. We thank you that it doesn't depend upon our feelings. We thank you for objective peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us in the peace of Christ to go for the glory of Christ, to bear witness 
to salvation in Christ, that we would be used by you to bear witness to the living Christ. Help us to not grow weary. Help us to not be apathetic. Help us to not be distracted by so many trivialities and even important things sometimes that distract us from this wonderful trust that you have given to us, that we might be sent even as Jesus was sent, that we might go in his name to bear witness to the truth, Father. Keep us going. Keep us striving even when we are weary. Keep us praying. Keep us declaring that good news in Jesus. And may you be pleased to use the members of this church to further your cause until that day when faith becomes sight and all things are made new. We long for that day. But would you keep us faithful until that day? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.